Reading from Genesis 32, starting at verse 3. Jacob sent messages ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favour in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels and their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, Who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us, for he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabuk. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men.
A few years ago, I was at a conference where there was a one-day training course in how to handle conflict well. And at this, at this um, conference, they talked about how different people have got different responses to conflict. Some of us are more naturally drawn to the fight kind of reflex in conflict, conflict situations, while others are more naturally drawn to the flight reflex. It's kind of a picture that came from that day. And the fight reflex could be all sorts of things. You can see it up there. Could be assault, whether verbal or physical. Could be litigation. At its very worst, it it could even be murder. Now, these are all kind of peace-breaking tendencies. When faced with conflict, some of us go into attack mode. But others, they go into escape mode. This could be a denial, could be flight, literally running away from the situation. At its worst, this could be suicide. Now, they're all peace-faking kind of tendencies. And it's a really good idea to know what your natural tendency is when you're faced with conflict. Do you tend to be a peace-breaker or a peace-faker? None of these are actually good responses to conflict. And this course, this one-day course that I did, was all about helping us to be peacemakers instead. Now, I reckon Esau and Jacob would have benefited from that one-day course on conflict, don't you? They've got very different responses to conflict, but both kinds of responses are hopeless. Think about Esau's natural response to conflict. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, Esau's response to conflict was to be a peace breaker. He definitely goes into attack mode in conflict. His plan was to murder his brother Jacob for stealing his blessing. And what about Jacob? Well, Jacob's response to conflict is to be a peace faker. He goes into escape mode. He gets what he wants by wrestling it from someone. And then what does he do? He turns and he runs for it. That's how he lives his life, actually. He grabs and he runs. And it's not a great way to live. And all of Jacob's deceiving and running is finally catching up with him all at once. Last week, he was desperately running away from Laban. Well, today we we pick up the story with Jacob running back into the hairy arms of Esau. It's like he's jumping out of the pan and into the fire. And it's in this desperate situation that we get to see God do the impossible in Jacob. God changes him. God, the, the great peacemaker, changes Jacob and brings him peace. Pick up the story with me in chapter 32, verse 1, if you've got it open there. Jacob, on arriving back on the border of the promised land, he's met by God's messengers, by angels. 20 years ago, he was fleeing the land and he'd seen them. He'd seen angels there, not with the ladder. And now as he's coming back, they meet him. God's reminding Jacob what he promised him back 20 years ago. Have a look at it in Genesis 28, verse 15, up on the screen. God had said to him back then, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And so Jacob, when he he meets these angels, he calls the place Mehanaim, which means two camps. Because he sees this army sent from God camped by his own camp. But despite this very clear sign from God, still he doesn't fully trust that God's going to watch over him. He still is trusting in his own cunning and initiative. 
And so we, we heard read, he sends messengers to his brother. And he says to them, to these messengers in verse 4, This is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may may find favor in your eyes. I'm not really sure what Jacob was hoping to achieve by sending this message. I mean, telling Esau that you've got lots of stuff sounds to me like telling a drug dealer you've got $50,000 hidden under your mattress. Maybe Jacob's plan is just that he's hoping that after 20 years, surely after 20 years, Esau will have just forgotten and forgiven. Maybe he's just testing the waters. Well, we see what happens in verse 6. The messengers come back to Jacob and they say, we went to your brother Esau and now he's coming to meet you. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Except for the next bit. And 400 men are with him. That's quite a welcoming party. It's a little bit too much of a welcoming party. In fact, it's the exact number of the ideal kind of ancient raiding party from those times. 20 years of flight hasn't resolved this conflict. It's just intensified the consequences. Instead of the conflict just affecting Jacob and Esau, now it affects 400 men and Jacob's wives and kids and his men. Unresolved conflict tends to do that. It escalates. It does more damage over time. But this story at its heart, it isn't a lesson in conflict resolution. It's a story about Jacob. And actually more than that, it's a story about God. It's a story about the way God works in His people, the patient way He chooses. He chooses them and stands faithfully by them, despite their wickedness and stupidity, and how God eventually changes people. Look at how Jacob reacts to this news of Esau's coming in verse 7. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. This is plan B, the escape plan. This is what comes naturally to Jacob. He's great at this kind of thing. He's great at running away. But this time, notice that things are a bit more desperate. Because with this plan, one camp will be doomed. And the other will flee. And and if they're lucky, they'll escape. This is plan B. But there is something that's new here. What's new is that Jacob doesn't just turn and flee. He doesn't just run away then and there. Maybe he really is out of other options. Maybe that's why. Or maybe something really is changing with him. Whatever the case is, he devises another plan. Plan A. And it's a plan that's very uncharacteristic for him. It seems like maybe some of the lessons of the past are finally catching up with him. And he's realizing that running isn't the best option. But before we have a look at Jacob's second plan, plan A, we see another clear, powerful sign that Jacob is being changed. Have a look with me at verse 9. Then Jacob prayed. What? Really? Then Jacob prayed. This time, 
when Jacob's in trouble, he actually talks to God. And he goes on to pray the longest prayer that's recorded in the book of Genesis. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. In this prayer, Jacob does two things that are very uncharacteristic for him. He humbles himself and he appeals to God to bring about his promises. Is this really the same Jacob? I mean, clearly God's been at work in his life because now he recognizes that he's, he's grasping and he's dece- deceiving that he's been doing hasn't secured his success at all. He finally seems to be recognizing that it's been God all along, every step of the way, who's made him succeed. In this desperate situation, God seems to be doing the impossible. He's changing Jacob. But don't get me wrong, this isn't a neat kind of instantaneous total transformation. But still, Jacob really is being changed. And you can see this even in plan A. Instead of just running, look at what plan A is in verse 13. Jacob spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 female camels with their young. 40 cows and 10 bulls. And 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. The blessing grabber is giving a massive blessing here. Why? Well, verse 20, for he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. Jacob here, and maybe a bit like us, he's a strange mix of faith in God and faith in self. He's also a strange mix of changed behavior and being up to the same old tricks. He prays to God. He hopes plan A works, but he knows that should all else fail, he can bank on plan B. He can run for it. So in verse 22, he puts the final part of his plan into place. We read, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabuk. He puts the river between him and Esau or between his family and Esau. And here's a picture, again, of of the Jabuk River. Not necessarily the actual place where they fought it, but could have been somewhere like that. So his family's on one side, he's back on the other side of the river. And verse 23, after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions, so Jacob was left alone. He's alone. He's given his wives and his kids a head start, but he's in exactly the same state that he was when he left the land 20 years earlier. In some ways, things haven't changed. 20 years ago, he was alone. He was running for his life from Esau. 
And at that point, that was when God appeared to him. And in this desperate moment, God does something strange here too. Have a look at verse 24. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. I mean, picture this. Jacob's been frantically trying to cross this ford at night with kids and sheep and camels and all sorts of things getting across there. He's finally got them out of sight. He's left alone. And then out comes this man and grabs him. He must have been pretty confused at this point. It must have been a pretty desperate moment for him. And it seems Jacob's faring okay in this fight at first. At least there's some kind of stalemate. But then things seem to take a turn for the worse. Have a look at verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Here is a man that Jacob just can't seem to overpower, to wrestle and win. Unlike Isaac or Esau or Laban, here's a man who's actually struck Jacob a terrible blow. Now, the wrestle had been going on all night when in verse 26, then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, when Jacob is is struck this crippling blow, he figures out at this point that he's not wrestling an ordinary man. He realized that this is someone sent from God. And so he goes from trying to wrestle this person and overcome him to simply holding on to this person for dear life. Even still, at this, this desperate point, Jacob, he still seems to be trying to wrestle a blessing. But now he's not so much fighting. He's clinging. He's not trying to grasp a blessing in his own strength with his own initiative from people. Now, finally, as, as a broken, desperate man with Esau bearing down on him, he's clinging to God for a blessing. And look at what the man says to him, verse 27. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Do you remember how he got that name? Do you remember how he was given that name because he grabbed his brother's heel at some point when they were being born? And remember that to grab someone's heel meant to deceive them, to be a deceiver. And for most of Jacob's life, he's just embraced that identity gladly. It's defined him. He's a man who takes what he wants and he runs with it. But now listen to what the man that he wrestles says in verse 28. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob is being reborn. His very identity, his character, he's being transformed. No longer is he to be named Jacob, but Israel. Israel can mean he fights with God, but equally it can mean God fights for him. And aren't both true in the story of Jacob? Jacob's been fighting against God his whole life, resisting as God transforms him. And yet still, God has been fighting for him and already blessing him at every turn, all his life. But Jacob hasn't seen it. And even here, 
as he wrestles this strange man, he's still struggling to see it. Look at verse 29. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? It's like the man is saying to him, don't you know who I am? Do you still not know the one who wants to bless you? It's obvious who this is. And finally, Jacob realizes, verse 29, then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Or this could read, because I saw God face to face, and so my life was spared. This man that Jacob's been wrestling is in some way God himself, but God within the limitations of flesh and blood, so that Jacob's able to grasp him and and the man is unable or at least unwilling to break Jacob's grasp. I find this encounter so mysterious, one of the most mysterious encounters in the Bible. I find it so hard to understand, because I find it so hard to understand why God would do this, Why would God allow a mere human to lay hold of him and to wrestle him, especially a man like Jacob? Now, it's it's very clear that God could have dislocated every single joint in Jacob's body if he wanted to, but he doesn't. He's the kind of God who's willing to wrestle with human weakness. God works with human weakness, and he works within human weakness to transform it. Our God is the kind of God who is willing to enter into the limitations of humanity in order to achieve his purposes. But what is God's purposes here? What what are his purposes here for Jacob? He wrestles him, he renames him, he blesses him. In all these things, God is changing him forever. And we see his purpose in verse 31. The sun rose above Jacob as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. The result of this encounter with God and and what's emphasized here by the narrator is that Jacob's limping at the end of it. Do you see why this is important? God's destroyed plan B. God has permanently changed Jacob so that he can't run. From now on, he limps. From now on, as as Jacob deals with God and with people, he can't run away. God touches one of the defining characteristics of Jacob, his flight, and he tears it down. Do you see what this means? Jacob, he overcomes in his wrestling with God only as his self-sufficiency is crippled. In other words, Jacob's fight with God is only successful as he becomes dependent on God fighting for him. His new character is actually defined by his inability. Now he is Israel. God fights for him. At the end of this encounter with God, Jacob's limping. He's exhausted after a night of wrestling. He's out of time and is exactly where he needs to be totally dependent on God. And look at what happens in verse 33, sorry, in chapter 33, verse 1. At that moment, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. 
So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He's still got some lessons to learn about favoritism. That will come. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Can you believe this? Jacob's not running anymore. Now he's at the head of the line. And God, the peacemaker, is clearly fighting for Jacob. Because look at Esau's reaction in verse 4. Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Jacob, you might remember, who was supposed to be Lord over his brother, has humbled himself to be his servant. He bows down, his family bows down. He stops grasping at his blessings and instead he says in verse 11, please accept the present. Literally, he says, take my blessing that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. Jacob's gone from grasping at Esau's blessing to giving back what he stole. He's a changed man. But the biggest change is that He's changed from trusting in his own cunning to trusting in God's gracious provision. The first time that God appeared to Jacob, he was still not convinced that he could trust God. Back in Genesis 28, Jacob said, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will will be my God. But now Jacob is a changed man. Now he's Israel. And we see this in the last verse of chapter 33. Then he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. God is the God of Israel. Jacob, he used to talk about God being the God of his grandfather, Abraham, and of his father, Isaac. No longer. Now he calls him his God. So that's Jacob's story. Next time when we come back to this in the holidays, it'll be Joseph's story. But all these thousands of years after Jacob's story, does his story have any relevance to us, to our stories? Well, it does. But first we need to remember that this is actually first and foremost God's story. And while God changes Jacob, God himself never changes the God who took hold of Jacob that night in the, in the shallows of the river is the same God today, exactly the same. Now, I'm not saying that we should expect that we may wrestle God in crossing the torrents at Linear Park. We can take away something far more pro- profound than that. We take away from this story that human weakness is no barrier to our God. God not only works despite human weakness, He works even through it. In Jacob, and then through the people of Israel across their history, and even in us today. Now, it's amazing that God would allow Jacob, a mere mortal, to take hold of him and and cling to him for a blessing. But what goes beyond all understanding is that God would take hold of humanity by taking it upon himself in Jesus, becoming human. As one song says, to our weakness, he is no stranger. 
God wrestles human hearts to himself by Jesus taking on our weakness, lowering himself to be our servant, dying our death in our place for our sin and our rebellion against God so that he can give us the blessing that was promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob so long ago that we don't deserve. Human weakness is no barrier for our God because God fights for us. But until we reach that point where we realise our weakness, like Jacob realised his, until then we'll just keep running from him instead of running to him. Until then, we'll just keep fighting against God. God wants to bless us. He wants to lift us up. But the problem for people like us is that we don't want to be humbled. Our world is a world wrestling against God. It doesn't realise it. It doesn't even want to acknowledge that it's God that it's fighting against. But the reality is, we're always attempting to overcome God. And if God would tick the boxes that we want him to tick, answer the prayers that we care about, accept the lifestyles that we accept, and if he would do what we want, then we'd be okay with him. Our world is always trying to wrestle God to be who we want him to be and to do for us what we want him to do. That might be where you're at right now. We've all been there and we'll probably all find ourselves back there at some point again. But we won't see the face of God that way. Like Jacob, it's only as we see our weaknesses, it's only as we realise our absolute dependence on God. Like him, it's only as we desperately cling to God, aware that there's no blessing in this life worth having if we don't have his. It's only then that we overcome. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because when we recognise our weakness, that's when we finally recognise our absolute dependence on God. And it's then that we see it's okay, because it's God who fights for us. A second thing we learn from the story of Jacob is that our God is the God who changes people. The God who pursued and and changed Jacob all those years ago is the same God that we know today. We're adopted into God's household just as we are, rags and all. But when we're in God's household, he doesn't leave us like that. Like Jacob, God changes us. makes me think of a song by Nathan Tasker called Your Love Changes Me. It goes like this, well, you cannot love me more and you will not love me less. Though I come to you with nothing, I receive your righteousness. Well, I come just as I am. Oh, but here's the mystery. While I can come without changing, your love changes me. We see this in, in the book of Romans in chapter 8, verse 28. Paul writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And we see exactly what the good is that God is working towards in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 
all things work for our good because God uses all things to change us, to change us to be more like Jesus. God is the God who changes us, and it's a beautiful thing. But don't miss that for God to change Jacob, it was painful. God took away Jacob's ability to run. For the rest of his life, he walked with a limp. God's mercy is a severe mercy, and it has to be. Otherwise, we won't see that it's mercy at all. We'll always keep thinking it's our cunning and our initiative that we need. But what we need more than anything else is God. Now, you might not be super excited about the idea that as God changes you, it'll be painful. But think about the alternative. If God were to leave us able to run, but running from him, that would be far, far worse. The changes that God brings about in us, they can be painful, but they're worth it. Whatever it takes to make us more like Jesus, whatever it takes, that's worth it. So let me finish with this question. Where are you at in wrestling with God? Are you still fighting against him? Or are you surrendering to him and letting him fight for you and change you to be more like Jesus? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, your word is amazing. Your character that it reveals, your beauty, your power, your willingness to stoop, And allow us to take hold of you. Lord, far more profound that you would take hold of us by in Jesus taking on humanity, serving us to the point of death in our place. Lord, we thank you that our weakness is no barrier to you because you fight for us. Lord, help us to give up fighting against you, running away from you, And instead, Lord, to surrender to you. And Lord, help us to embrace the changes you are making in our lives. Make us more like Jesus. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, change us and mould us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.